Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And this is Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. Welcome back to another episode of Seriously. Today, I'm feeling rather croaky-voiced and bleary-eyed as I stayed up most of last night watching the Oscars. Though, Caroline, you were kind enough to let me come into work late today. So I am generous like that. <laughs> <laughs> so it was quite a challenge, but one I met armed with Diet Coke and biscuits. <laughs> <laughs> did you not even get a takeaway? Yeah, I did get a takeaway, but that was demolished by the time 1am yeah. Because I've never watched, so I had no idea it takes four hours. Yeah, it's really long. I bought loads of food to like sustain me over the night but actually start to feel a bit sick and like tired and food it doesn't help it just Mm. makes you sleepier actually surprisingly enjoyable well the results were better than i had expected i feel like we were vindicated in our biopex episode (laughs) because the revenant did not win it only won for best director it didn't win best picture or anything else obviously leo won best actor he finally Um, won Mm. yeah and not bothered by that it won best cinematography as well but yeah it didn't sweep the board in the way that it was expected to there were some more surprises in there like Mark Rylance who we didn't really think was going to win best supporting actor did we but you were quite keen for him too I was quite keen mostly just because I think he's an incredible actor also both my parents watched that film Bridge of Spies on the plane on our way back from our recent trip to South Africa and both of them raved about it for the next two days so I think I might actually watch it now I know I need to catch up with that and also Madman Max, it's been confirmed to me that I need to watch that now. Ditto Spotlight, which I haven't seen yet, but which was kind of the surprise best picture. Yeah, it was a surprise. There's been lots of sort of self-congratulation from the journalist community about it, which I find really trying because it's like, how many of you are actually investigative journalists? Like me (laughs) writing about like Channing Tatum's pecs once a week. I can't exactly be like, thanks to the efforts of humans (laughs) like me, sexual violence in the Catholic Church was tackled. But I was really pleased that it won because I do think it was much better than The Revenant. Even if it wasn't my favourite, maybe Room or Carol would have been my absolute favourite. Yeah, the big disappointment for me, actually, of the Oscars overall was no wins for Carol Mm. at all, which we both really, really loved and I just think was a really interesting piece of filmmaking. Yeah, I thought that they could have won Best Cinematography and they didn't, which was a real shame. I think, I don't know if we've talked about this on the podcast before,
before, but no woman's ever been nominated for Best Cinematographer at the Oscars. And although oh. uh, it wasn't a woman cinematographer who directed Carol, the star was very influenced by a lot of female mm. photographers and stuff. So although it obviously wouldn't have been a, a win for women had they won that award, that was just something about it. There was like an extra push for me to be like, no, I really want this to win Best Cinematography because there are ways of looking at the world and exploring film that can have like a feminine... Well, it's recognising a different style as good, isn't Yeah, exactly. It? Which is, I think, probably a small incremental step towards eventually a woman winning that award. <laughs> yeah. So it's a shame that that didn't happen. Yeah, so overall, I think a more interesting night than we had any right to suspect. Yeah, and a uh, shout out to Jacob Tremblay, who was just like so fully adorable all night. I yeah. love him. <laughs> He's so cute. And his hot dad. And, and also, <laughs> we should say, although I think we're going to talk about her a bit later, so I won't go big on this now, but yay Brie Larson. I she know. Won. Ma- massive yay for Brie Larson, who I love. Jacob Tremblay, my, my partner through this in every way possible. Thank you to everyone who participated in Room. Thank you to all of you who saw it. Thank you to the fans. Thank you to the moviegoers. Thank you for going to the theater and seeing our films. I appreciate it. Thank you. So the first thing that we're going to talk about this week is actually a big Hollywood glamorous in the vein of the Oscars movie, which is Hail Caesar. Hail Caesar is uh, the latest offering from Joel and Ethan Cohen, set in a 1950s movie studio called Capital. It's part sharp satire and part nostalgic portrait of the twilight years of Hollywood's golden age. It details a day in the life of the studio's fixer, Eddie Mannix, who's played by Josh Brolin, as he attempts to clean up myriad scandals from surprise pregnancies and rumours of homosexual relationships on set to the kidnapping of Capital's most prized star, Baird Whitlock, who's played by a wide-eyed George Clooney. Here at Capital Pictures, as you know, millions of people look to us for information and uplift and, yes, entertainment. And we're going to give it to them. And action. An army of technicians and actors and top-notch artistic people are working hard to bring to the screen our biggest release of the year. Hail Caesar is a prestige picture with one of the biggest stars in the world, Baird Whitlock. So there's quite a lot of contextualising with this film, isn't there? Because it's based on real people and sort of real scandals at the time and a real movie studio. Yeah, so Eddie Mannix was a real person. He worked for a number of studios in that kind of fixer role, most notably MGM, I think he's particularly associated with. Yeah, so that kind of loose term fixer... I mean, from watching the film, I gathered it was kind of a bit like a PR role, but a bit more hands-on than that. We see Eddie Mannix sort of talking to journalists, but we also see him dealing with a lot of the internal operations of the studio and just like generally going around and like fixing problems. Well, I think that is sort of bred of the fact that at the time when this film is talking about Hollywood, you're still very much in the grip of the studio system where rather than actors being sort of paid per film, they're owned by the studio and not just in terms of what films they make, but in terms of their lives as well so that's why Eddie gets to decide who marries who and who's going to live where and could so and so appear with this person because they control the kind of life rights and likeness and appearance of their stars as well as their career so yeah he's kind of like a PR but on steroids in a way because he not only sells the product he also manufactures the product that he sells exactly so he just does everything some of the stars as well we get a feeling that they're based on like stars that we'd know from the time so people have said 
said that George Clooney's character is a kind of Kirk Douglas figure. He made me think of Clark Gable. We could go on for ages, couldn't we? Sort of like picking apart where and who all these different people are and where they're from and would take someone with a more detailed knowledge of the sort of Hollywood era that we're talking about than me to do that for you. And me, I've been listening to the You Must Remember This podcast, which is about the history of Hollywood for a while now. And even then, I think most of the references in it went over my head. But I suppose the question you have to ask is, does that matter? Is it still an enjoyable film? And I I think, yes. Definitely. I mean, I would say everyone should go and listen to the Eddie Mannix episode of You Must Remember This. Um, So if you just search You Must Remember This in your podcast app or whatever um, and look for the Eddie Mannix one, it is really, really interesting and quite a good counterpart to the kind of portrayal you get of him in this film, which is kind of rose-tinted. Yeah, he's mostly supposed to be a kind of lovable brute with a a tortured conscience. You Mm. see several times during the film, you see him going to give confession and then praying over what he should do. And and he's obviously, quote, a family man and this sort of thing. When actually the reality is a bit darker than that. that He he did some pretty questionable things in his quest to keep the studio's reputation up and make money. Really dark stuff. I mean, from like covering up and discrediting rape victims victims to there are even people who think maybe like bumping people off was involved like it's or covering up the bumping off of people yeah Yeah. it's really really dark and absolutely insane and anyone who thinks oh this sounds scandalous and interesting should definitely check out the podcast but i do think it is sort of like an on-screen romp regardless of all that context it's really genuinely really funny one thing i have definitely learned is that hollywood loves making films about hollywood the fact Mm. that they've been like i didn't know this i only know the one star in judy garland of a star is born which is another sort of film about the hollywood system there have been like five remakes of that film in the 20th century hollywood loves nothing more than not even satirizing but glorifying itself yeah and so that's what this film is about the the studio is making this gigantic blockbuster called hail caesar which is the story of christ told through the eyes of a roman centurion played by george clooney's baird whitlock but you also get this tour around everything else that's happening at the studio and so you get these little vignettes of the other films that are being made so there's like a cowboy movie and then a kind of (laughs) british period piece (laughs) and i don't even know what that one scarlett johansson's in it's like a kind of weird water ballet with mermaids in my mind it's part of the same movie as channing tatum's gay sailor movie because they start talking singing about mermaids Oh, mates. So they do. So <laughs> Channing Tatum's Gay Sailor movie in this is 100% the highlight of the film. The peak, the absolute peak of this movie and also potentially my life. <laughs> and you get like four minutes of it on screen. I would watch 90 minutes or more of that whole movie. It's amazing. Yeah, it's literally Channing Tatum and a bunch of other men in very tight-fitting sailor outfits dancing with each other because they're about to go away on a sailing trip and they're not going to find any dames on this boat. So they're kind of all cuddling up to one another, dancing. We'll be searching high and low on the deck and down below, but it's a crying shame. Oh, we'll see a lot of fish, but we'll never clock a dish. We ain't gonna see a day. No day. We might see some octopuses. No day. Or a half a dozen clams. No day. We might even see a mermaid, but mermaids got no yams. No yams. 
there's a brilliant shot as seen in the trailer where Channing Tatum kind of turns around with someone's legs spread underneath his chin his head balanced on their arse and it's just like so great and so funny and I laughed the entire way through partially because it was funny and partially because I was just on cloud nine and full of joy yeah it's amazing again it's not only a movie within a movie it's referencing other movies inside and that's happening throughout and it's also kind of self-referential because there are lots of parallels with the 1991 Coen Brothers film uh, Barton Fink Mm. which I love and is much darker it's about a screenwriter and it's set in capital quote marks pictures which in this film is much more closely aligned to MGM but yeah it's all part of this weird kind of Hollywood world that the Coen brothers have built up. And part of how they do that is by casting the same people in all Mm. their films. Like, I was not remotely surprised when Tilda Swinton turned up (laughs) in this film, (laughs) you know, playing, in fact, two versions of herself. She's playing two twins Twins. um, who are both journalists competing for the same story, which is a bit weird. They just use the same... Like, George Clooney's been in how many Coen brothers films now? Yeah, but it's also... It's it's such a cami heavy film and that idea of, like, oh, there's a star, there's another star works in that kind of meta way that you're like meant to be in this lush glamorous Hollywood setting and where you're like another one another one so I feel like although often that really like cameo building cast can seem so unnecessary for me in this it really worked yes because Scarlett Johansson doesn't have very much screen time at all she's only really got two scenes Mm -hmm. one where she's being a mermaid and the other one where she's being made to give up her baby and then adopt it back (laughs) because of some kind of manix PR scheme but it makes total sense that of course in the world of capital films when you go into another lot there'd be another A-list movie star because it's a film studio and that's who they employ yeah and that's why it's so great to get all these like little bursts Mm. of the films that they're making at the time which are the moments of like high nostalgia and glamour that you get in the film and then they're undercut with this idea of like a real harshness and the sort of lie of Hollywood of that time so you kind of end up with this thing that's not quite cutting down Hollywood but not building it up either and I wondered did you come away feeling like you were on one side or the other because I sometimes think part of the joy of Hollywood to people on the outside is knowing that there's one thing you're getting and also speculating about the darkness underneath that's why people love oh, yeah, tabloids to- so totally. much that, I think that's why Hollywood endures yeah. is because we don't just love the glossy final product we love the behind the scenes the making of the leaked photos the that, seedy underbelly the seedy underbelly of it absolutely and I couldn't tell whether the Coen brothers were celebrating that or poking fun at it and and saying that it was a terrible thing. I want to say sort of both. Mm. The other thing that they are kind of ambivalent about is the main driver of the plot of the Coen Brothers film Hail Caesar, not the main driver of the in-movie movie Hail Mm. Caesar, is this sort of communist witch hunt. Mm -hmm. The plot revolves around the fact that George Clooney, the star, gets kidnapped from the set and it gradually becomes clear that this is part of a communist plot to ransom him for reasons that are not really clear. (laughs) All the communist are screenwriters and you're not really sure whose side they're on they don't seem to know you just get this sense that the Coen brothers themselves never really know what they think of this old Hollywood machine Mm. with all its problems because there's basically a whole idea in this film where Mannix is the Christ-like figure at the Mm. centre of Hail Caesar where we do see him going into confession and and the priest is saying you know you're really here too often you're not that bad and obviously the joke is that we know this guy is a dark individual he's like doing all these terrible things all the time and not confessing them 
but he still has this god complex because he's running the whole studio and the studio is a microcosm it's a world within a world you know you have the sea around one corner and a beautiful English drawing room around the next so and there's this whole thing where they're filming this movie about Jesus and you never see Jesus's face and there's even a line where the actor playing Jesus someone comes along and says are you a principal or an extra and he's like I don't know and this idea that like no one really knows who Jesus is in this film what role he has to play but Mannix knows what his role is and what he has to play and you know that the Coen brothers are kind of poking fun of it on one hand and being like obviously he's he's not he's an egomaniac yeah he's delusional but on the other hand you're like but he's running the show and these studios did produce some of the most incredibly entertaining movies of the period they never really come down on one side of the coin or another that for me was quite fun but it does leave you very confused it does and then of course there's the kind of added layer of in the context of this particular film they are the Mannix figures like I thought it was very telling that you know the film ends and then the next thing you see in the credits is just written produced and directed by by Joel and Ethan Cohen and And it comes out of this sort of like they end it don't they with this very kind of like divine inspiration-y moment and the text sort of comes out of this golden sky and it's like this big joke and you know that they're playing with you but you're also like you're laughing at me and I'm never going to quite be in on the joke because I don't know what's going on in your mind you are in the show and you did just create all of this and I did just sit there and watch (laughs) it was I not supposed to I don't know so I massively enjoyed it actually and for me felt like a real antidote to some of the more joyless films that we've had in the run up to Oscar season I'm so glad that Oscar season is over not least because I mean we we went to the same screening and I think we both enjoyed the trailers almost (laughs) as much much. as the films (laughs) because oh my goodness there's a film about Eddie the Eagle it's gonna be amazing and I'm so glad we were allowed to smile again it all looks like great fun so bring on March and the films therein selling a little or a lot Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Greta Garbo is probably crying while Robert Taylor is locked in her dying embrace. Chico and Bracho and Chaplin and Lloyd are all super. 
Sweet Mickey Mouse, Shirley Temple, and dear Jackie Let's Cooper. go to the movies. Let's go, go see the stars. The Riot Girl season on Radio 4 is badged as provocative writing by women and encompasses adaptations of Erica Jong's Fear of Flying from 1973 and Faye Weldon's The Life and Loves of a She-Devil from 1983, as well as new hour-long radio plays following three women of different generations in the same family. These, called Susan, Emma and Katie, each tell the story of a woman's feminist awakening and attempts to navigate her work, family and inner life, from the 70s commune that Susan flees to to escape her husband, to Katie's on-campus fight for better sex education in 2015. So this is a season all on Radio 4, and it's all fiction, Mm. which is interesting, because although I'm massively into podcasts, I don't listen to that much fictional radio or audio. I don't know about you. Yeah, radio plays are something that I have occasionally got into via something else, so like already knowing the play and Mm. being like, oh, there's a version of that coming on the radio. I will occasionally get obsessed with like a Radio 4 adaptation of a book, like I... There's a Foresight Saga one going on at the moment that I'm really enjoying. Are you an Archers listener? No. No. I'm not even just not an Archers listener. I'm like an anti-Archers activist. Oh, really? Okay. Any American listeners, by the way, who want to know what the Archers is, hit us up on Twitter and we'll explain. (laughs) Literally, get involved. Generally being not very aware of what is happening in radio drama. I really, really like this season. I mean, obviously, very interesting to us as sort of young-ish feminists. Thank you for the ish. (laughs) Well, we are young-ish. But like, we're past our quote marks feminist awakening phase, probably. It was probably aimed at people like you and me. I mean, they've specifically said that it's a season that spans from the 70s to today. Yeah. So that's got quite a broad audience in mind, presumably. But it felt like this was more targeted at someone like me than usual. Yes, which I think is probably a direct effort on Radio 4's part. They've explicitly made that connection between what young people might know of feminism and feminist politics now and drawing the heritage back through mm-hmm. what happened in the 90s, what happened in the 80s, what happened in the 70s. Yeah, so what did you make of the, the Faye Weldon adaptation? What When was this written? 1983, apparently. Okay, cool. Because it felt timeless to me. It felt quite like it could have been set in like the 1700s, but also mm. that it could have been set like in my neighbour's kitchen, if you know what I mean. Because the plot is basically, at the beginning, you're introduced to the narrator. The drama circles around her husband, who's having an affair, and... She's describing this woman, Mary, who's like a fiction writer. And the way she's describing her, for me, made me think she was the titular she-devil in the lives and loves of a she-devil. You quickly start to realise that actually maybe the narrator is the titular she-devil. It's like playing with this idea of like who's evil because Mary is sexual and flirtatious and a seductress and basically a bit of a femme fatale. And like a homewrecker. Yeah, who's intentionally stealing men away from their homes and like trampling on the wives' lives and like without a care in the world and also kind of like weirdly naive about it and doesn't realise the destruction she's causing. But then our narrator gets her revenge and that's basically the plot of this is how she just she's like very calculatedly is like right i'm going to destroy his life in a way that he could not imagine and also hers in a way Mm. that they just couldn't possibly fathom there's an interesting bit of blurb i found somewhere on the bbc website which was a sort of article written by the woman who adapted it into a radio play saying that initially she tried to kind of decontextualize it so she took out all the references that made it really 80s like references to volivants and stuff that i felt Um, that i think but in the end, she ended up putting some of it back in yeah. because otherwise it felt too denuded of context. I was honestly struggling to place it until she said they, that they were watching TV or that she there was, there was a line with the word TV in and I was like, oh, okay. 
because I think somehow for me that revenge quality is caught between like the revenge tragedies of like the 1700s mm. and the like modern slightly ironic misandry yeah. it's like that idea of a she-devil that people are kind of both that traditional fear of the she-devil that actual fear of the misandry and then the modern day slightly ironic playful idea of misandry so I, I really liked it I was really into it I was like really soaking up those vibes mm. <laughs> So the main original writing aspect of the season are these three plays, Susan, Emma and Katie, that are sort of taking in the the lives of three women in the same family. So like grandmother, mother, mm-hmm. daughter, each written at a point when they're quite young. So the first one is set in 1975, then 1995 and then 2015. And so you get the kind of a little snapshot of what feminists were struggling with at each point so in Mm. the 1975 one susan she's from birmingham she meets this guy she really likes when she's 17 she's doing really well at school but then she gets pregnant so she leaves instead of going to university she has the baby and they get married and she keeps house for him and then she kind of a few years later after another kid she's kind of like "Mm, no this was not how my life was supposed to be she leaves him she ends up living in this commune and so it's all about the kind of 70s hippie and you know it's the kind of commune where they raise the children collectively and so she brings the kids no children use the terms mum and dad everyone's just called by their actual name because no one should be defined by their parental role and you know it sounds fun it's really interesting and so you get both the positive benefits of that but then she discovers that all of the kind of misogyny and oppression that she experienced in her marriage this dude she takes up with in the commune tries to do exactly the same thing to her it's and bloody it's structural who it, would have thought it i know it's, it's, one of, <laughs> it's one of the like best delineations i've ever heard of the like oh so lefty bros can be bad too kind of thing <laughs> Um, Damn it, the patriarchy. Yeah. I knew it. So that that's I really like that one. I thought that it was very great. good. In the 1995 one, her daughter Emma has done what her mother never could. She's gone to university. She's got a first from Oxford in PPE. She's working for New Labour. Traitor. Oh, traitor. You get all of the sort of like 90s laddish sexism. And then the 2015 one, mm. which I know you like. Yes, I did. So this one uh, sort of focuses on Katie as she's... I, is she a first year or a second year? She's fairly new to university. She's, I think she's probably first year, yeah. Yeah, and she is basically caught up in something that's still ongoing for many young people at university, the problem of rape culture on campus. And she almost accidentally finds herself campaigning for... Her specific aspect of her campaign is the idea that we need to get men to speak more about rape basically and and refocus it as a men's problem Mm. which actually i thought was where some of the strengths of the program lay in looking at that issue because while it's obviously a personal piece in a lot of senses it's about her relationship like with her paternal grandmother and her boyfriend and other people that she's at uni with and so on it's very much about the issues it, that she's campaigning about at the same time, isn't it? Like most of the conversations centre around her trying to persuade people. Yeah, and making all the arguments. That, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's very rooted in these in these ideas. And f- the strength of that for me was this idea of like, actually, rape is a men's issue because mm. men are committing rape in the majority. And it was interesting to hear not just, because I think it's become almost an overused phrase, don't tell women not to wear short skirts, tell men not to rape. Yeah obviously true Mm. but what this did was try and go one step further than that and without being a rape apologist or anything like that what the character of katie wants to do is talk to the men who've nearly raped yeah or raped what made you stop how did you stop and why did you want to stop yeah why did you not stop which was really interesting yeah it was 
I think some problems come out of it a little bit. Like, I don't know if this is because of the generational aspect of this play, but there was a weird focus on, well, not focus, but quite a few lines that commented on, like, porn and how porn had contributed. Yeah, to, I thought that was a bit glib. Which, yeah, yeah, I think maybe misunderstands. It makes it a problem about sex rather than a problem about power. Like, I thought there was a lot of focus on, like, oh, you know, that it's, there's just this impulse. It's, like, mm. impo- it's really that- difficult to stop. And, like, oh, I've been watching porn for a really long time. And a lot of it was, like, really graphic. And you're, like, is that really the issue? Or, I mean, but maybe this, this is the point, And this is what I think they did quite well. So in following this narrative through of we need to create a non-judgmental space where men can speak about these issues, they actually did that. The programme ends with these clips of different men explaining the sort of problematic sexual experiences they've had where consent has been iffy, and then there's no comment on them. Mm. And so part of me was like, is this bad? Are we are we being invited to feel sympathy for these potential rapists or rapists? But actually on reflection, I think maybe we're not, because... Basically, the reason that I say that is because some of the men are like, and then I saw the look on her face and I felt so bad and I stopped and I'm a bit like, congratulations, do you want a cookie? Mm. Like, well done for not raping somebody. Yeah. But perhaps that's actually the reaction that they want to provoke in you. They want you to be like, I can't... Because you want to both be able to say, okay, these men are not monsters, they're individual men, but also say, you're delusional if you think I feel sorry for you in this situation because I don't, right? Yeah, and I think, yeah, you're right. I think that's what the drama is trying to elicit in you is that response of i i want to be aware of your reasoning but i don't but i don't feel sorry i don't feel sorry for you what did you make of the the sort of media aspect of katie's story because i found this quite interesting that she's been writing her own blog and she's written a few pieces for her student newspaper and then she speaks at a rally that i think gets some it's probably on youtube or something the idea is that she's kind of getting a bit of a profile as a campaigner Mm. and then she gets approached by this publisher being like we want to make you like the British Lena Dunham you can write a book about this and she's like great can I write about how 10 women an hour are raped in the UK and she's like "Mm, could you like also pad it out with some funny stuff about your boyfriend and your vagina which I think is I mean it's definitely true that we have this problem now where I don't want to say feminism is edgy and like people pretend to be feminists when they're not because that's not the issue but the issue is people see how influential feminism is and how important it is to young women and they attach and they other try, things to it yeah and they try to use that commercially so the problem comes from you know upstairs not downstairs as it were oh, in that like yeah. there are big corporations trying to use the cachet of feminism and that's definitely what happened here and i think i think we've all seen sort of examples of that story in actual media there's a more interesting conundrum there from katie's perspective which is not like oh do i do i jeopardize my principles for my career but do i jeopardize my principles a bit to make sure that more people read my book and more people know about the 10 women who are raped an hour Mm. which is definitely the more interesting question and part of that is like is it better to just stand it full of in rooms full of people who already agree with me and just not really do anything to change people's minds or should i be going to these parties and like trying to become more mainstream so that I've got this breadth of audience so that I can be like, guys, change your behaviour. Which is interesting. It's a mm. it's a conversation that's happened around what Emma Watson's done with her yeah. for she campaign Definitely. for the UN, for instance, isn't it? Where she got, not a lot, but she got some criticism for how kind of seemingly basic that is yeah. as a feminist analysis. And like, why is she wasting her time like trying to talk to the men when the women are in danger? And obviously her reasoning is because you guys all already agree with me <laughs> these people don't and there's i get i get the frustration with someone like emma watson because i think emma watson would probably be the first to admit that she's new to feminism mm. really relatively and like 
it's difficult to take a message that is accessible that's also intersectional and reflects the complexity of the of the problems at hand but i also think that there is a place for people like emma watson doing things like that i wouldn't i wouldn't want to make her disappear just because she doesn't do it perfectly and that's i think the point that i came to after all of these plays is that at no point in any of these decades has anything been perfect Mm. but people are still trying and that's yeah, and I, and I also good. think that that means that it's still important to have the critics yeah. of Emma Watson. I don't want them to go away either. No. I, want, I want this whole stuff to continue and I want people to be like, hang on, that's a really white version of feminism that I don't agree with or like that completely ignores my disabled experience. Mm. But that doesn't mean that she should completely stop either. So yeah, I thought it was really interesting and like surprisingly complex for... I don't know why I imagined a Radio 4 drama on consent and young people to be out of touch, but I kind of did. No, I think that's a reasonable <laughs> assumption. Yeah. Uh, Things are kind of changing with Radio 4. They are yeah. they are trying harder to do these things from where they originate rather than telling you how it should be. Yeah, definitely. And that's definitely good. So yeah, there's some other good stuff in part of the series. I definitely recommend Erica Jong's Fear of Flying adaptation. Yeah, I'm definitely going to check Which is from the out. 70s as well. So yeah, if you just search, I think if you just search Riot Girls in the Radio Y player app, Yeah, spelt it, uh, sort of normally, unusually. So like Riot, G-I-R-L-S. Not like the music movement. Yeah. yeah. All of this stuff comes up. I am woman, hear me roar In numbers too big to ignore And I know too much to go back and pretend Last week I recommended that Caroline give Short Term 12 a watch, starring Brie Larson. It's a film about a short-term care home for vulnerable children and young people. Caroline, major thoughts? I absolutely love this film. Did you? I loved it so much that I watched it through once, and then I basically watched it all the way through again, paused and took loads of screen grabs. My whole desktop and my laptop is just covered of screen grabs of this film because I thought it was so beautiful. I'm so glad you agree. It's amazingly well shot isn't it but also it's so, just so, so beautiful so intense and like so, emotional so quietly intense i don't think i've been so moved by a film that is so kind of quiet and low-key for a very long time yeah because i did find it incredibly moving like definitely cried at least once in it and some of the characters in it even just seeing them in the background of another scene made my heart ache (laughs) yeah it's been a really long time since I felt that strongly about a film oh that's so good to hear so basically they link some of the problems that Brie Larson's character Grace is going through with some of the young people in the home I think we we can assume that Grace gets into her job because she's also suffered difficulties as a young person growing up. Her dad, we realise fairly soon in, was abusive. And obviously a lot of the kids that she's looking after, the reason that they're in care is because they've had negligent or abusive parents. Yeah. And it's really heart-wrenching to see her come to sort of realisations through working with these young people, but also to use her own experiences to help them when she can. Yeah, that's the part that I liked most, actually, that she can be both really overwhelmed by her past again, but at the same time, she stays completely functional for the kids, and she uses what she knows and what's happened to her to help them. I'm thinking particularly of her relationship with Jaden, mm-hmm. the young girl, who is struggling with her relationship with her dad and with self-harm and anger issues and all this kind of thing. And after a particularly bad outburst, when they're in the like cool-down room, which is like a room covered in carpet with a really <laughs> annoying yellow inflatable dog in it, which would just make you angrier, she notices that Jaden's like digging her thumbnail into her hand mm. because it's obviously helping her 
like relieve some of the stress and she just shows her the scars on her ankle and she's like that's where I used to do it you kind of get to know these kids although it never feels like they're making a huge song and dance about like this is this kid's problem but yeah, you meet the, them all and it touches on all of their sort of individual backgrounds as it goes so along it's so cleverly written because it's not at all expository so for instance Sammy who's quite young I think he's only supposed to be 10 or 11 maybe Mm. the main thing you know about him is that he has a lot of dolls and toys that obviously looking after them helps him feel calm and then part way through his therapist or whatever takes them all away because he has to learn to cope without them and you just gradually get to the understanding that sammy had a sister who you assume is dead and that all of these toys belong to her and that that's how he sort of keeps her alive to himself and that so therefore having them all taken away means that she's actually really dead to him and he can't cope with that yeah and there's such a moving bit when one of the people who works there nate he's cleaning and he finds one of the dolls down the back of the sofa so he like cleans it up and just goes and puts it on his bedside table and doesn't say anything but it's just like you're gonna be okay guys yeah and it means so much to him yeah and i think the reason this film is so successful i mean obviously it's so well written and directed so shout out to destin daniel cretton who's the writer and director and it was his first film which i just find absolutely amazing but the cast are so good Mm. and a lot of those kids were brand new to acting just people they found for it and they're all so brilliant but the whole cast i mean john gallagher jr as mason rami malik as nate who's so so brilliant who comes in as the newcomer so he's the character that enables sort of the the people who work there to kind of do a lot of the kind of explanation and stuff you need as a viewer and to like introduce you to some of the characters and he introduces himself to this group of like (laughs) kids saying that he's always wanted to work with underprivileged children and then this amazing character marcus who's like nearly 18 and he's nearly about to leave he's just like what 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 the fuck are you saying like (laughs) say it again like this poor guy this new guy's just like oh my god what have i said the kids are amazing, but also the the relationship between Grace and Mason really just left mm. me like weeping the whole time. It's just a really lovely, supportive relationship with all the difficulties you would expect from a couple, especially at a time like they're at where Grace is like going through a lot of these problems. One of the main plot points in the film is is that she realizes that she's pregnant, and the way they deal with it that I think that was perhaps the most emotional strand of the mm. film for me was all the bits to do with them getting pregnant as a couple. Yeah, they are completely adorable, but at the same time, that never cloying. I have this tendency to like hate happy people in films, <laughs> which probably says more about me than anything else. But I didn't. I I the opposite of hated them. Yeah, I just they're they not. Were brilliant. They're not. Um, you know, clicking heels and daisies and roses yeah. in the park, sort of happy couple. They're like, can we achieve basic intimacy? Couple. Yeah. So yeah, I'm so glad you liked it. I would highly recommend it to all listeners. Yeah, I please watch it. It's on Netflix. It is on Netflix. Yeah, you can't you can't do better. It, and it's short as well. It's an hour and a half. Yeah. It's really good. So turning our thoughts to next week, <laughs> very different kind of film. <laughs> I'm going to recommend you the film Date Night, which stars Tina Fey and Steve Carell. In It wasn't their first movie roles by any means, but it was their first, I think, properly starring This Is Your Vehicle type right, roles okay. for both of them as in like you know steve carell from blah blah blah. yeah exactly it was like you've seen him on television now look at him on a larger screen yeah and ditto like you know her from snl and sitcoms here is tina fey wearing high heels you know <laughs> that that was very much the premise of the film they had a reunion a date night reunion at the oscars i saw the two did they really present it they presented an award together and i was like ah you've seen them in date night <laughs> and oscar presenting <laughs> And it's a kind of romantic comedy slash action movie. 
It sounds ridiculous already. It is ridiculous. <laughs> and for reasons I cannot pin down, and I'm sort of hoping you won't be able to help me with, I love it. Okay, cool. I can't wait to give it a try. Thanks for listening to Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, iTunes and Tumblr. All the links are at newstatesman.com slash S-R-S-L-Y. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.